Now I'll invite you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in your Bibles. We're moving through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been spending some time in chapter 14 considering what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has to say about spiritual gifts. And we're going to begin at verse 20 this morning and we're beginning to wrap up this section that has to do with speaking in tongues and who would have thought we would have learned so much through such a lengthy study of speaking in tongues. Not something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about prior to this, but I have gained a lot. I hope you have. I believe that our church has. As we get ready to read that first verse together, I'll ask you a question. And this will, if you'll think about this through the course of this sermon, I think it will help you connect with the main point of it. So here's the question. Is God really among us? When I say that, I don't mean is he present in the sense like he's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere all the time. But I mean more in the sense, is his power evidently at work among us? So the question is, is God's power evidently present and at work among us as a church? And then the second question that goes along with it, how can you tell? How can you tell if God's power is present and evidently at work in any local church, including ours? Now, don't answer out loud. Just be thinking about it. The Corinthians thought that the evidence of God's power being present and at work among them was these ecstatic personal worship experiences that would come out in what's called here the speaking in tongues. And they thought that they were a mature and healthy church because they had a lot of this speaking in tongues going on among them. But it turns out, as we're seeing as we study God's word, they were wrong. And so as we think about this question, we need to receive God's word here because we're not that different from the Corinthian Christians. We too could be wrong in how we think about these things. We could mistake something as evidence for God's power and presence among us that actually isn't evidence for God's presence and power among us. We could think that having really top-notch moving music means that God is powerfully present among us, but that's not necessarily the case. We could think that having huge attendance is an indicator that God is present and powerfully at work among us. Next Sunday, we could come and every pew be filled up, and it'd be great, but that's not necessarily an indicator of God's presence and power among us either. We could mistake any number of things for it, but we want to be guided by God's word. So we need to pay attention to this passage as well. It's going to help us to think maturely about this. And that's our, the first point, really, as we get into verse 20. We must think maturely about our church and our gatherings to worship. Verse 20 says, Brothers, So he does view them as Christians, even though they are troubled and they're having all this difficulty with how they're using spiritual gift. He calls them brothers. These are Christians. Christians and churches full of Christians can be troubled sometimes. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. See, the Corinthians... Paul implies here were mature in evil or wickedness or twistedness, but they were like infants in their thinking. 
That's why they misused the spiritual gifts. That's why they lacked love as a church. That's why their gatherings were characterized by selfishness. They were immature in the way they thought, but they were really good at the little deviousnesses that can become present in a church body. You know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're perfect yet, and we still have traces of our sin nature in us, and we can sometimes be pros at evil even while we're trying to be the church together. And that was the case here for the Corinthians. Paul says, no, be mature in your thinking. Think like a grown-up. Think like an adult about these things. Be immature in evil. Be infants in evil, but be mature like an adult in your thinking. You need childlike faith to become a Christian, but you're not supposed to stay in a state of childlikeness in your thinking. You're supposed to grow up in how you think about things. How do we do this? How do we think in a mature way about our Christianity, our faith, and our life as a church together? We have to think scripturally. That's how you think maturely. You think scripturally. We all are always in danger of thinking like a child and not thinking scripturally when it comes to our approach to our faith and our church life. We're in danger of just going with our guts, going with our instinct, going with our preferences, going with quick comparisons to other churches. And that's how children think. You know, if you have children, you know that's, that's what drives them often. It's just their gut instinct. It's, what, it's the whims of the day. It's the preference they feel right now. It's what they saw somebody else do, what they saw their parents do. That's how children think. And Paul's saying, no, don't, don't think like that. You have a higher source, a source that will make you wise. You can think like a mature adult spiritually if you'll think scripturally. And so he immediately points them back to scripture. Verse 21. And this is considered to be a very difficult passage to untangle. Um, But I I think we can understand it. Verse 21. In the law, referring to just the Old Testament scriptures, it is written, by people of strange tongues... And by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, what is he talking about? He's referring to Isaiah chapter 28. You might want to jot that down to look there later. I'm not going to go and read the whole thing right now. At that time, God was calling the prophet Isaiah to send a message to his people, Israel. The leaders in Israel who were self-assured, seemingly gifted people were acting childlike in terms of spiritual things, and they were leading the people astray. And so Israel was deeply troubled at this time, and they were in a lot of sin. And God was sending Isaiah with a message, go and tell them that they're in trouble, and I'm going to judge them. I'm going to discipline them. And this is the form that this discipline is going to take. Foreign invaders are going to come and take over the land. And what's interesting about it, if you will go back and read Acts 28 sometime, one of the things God emphasizes isn't the violence of it, although there would be that, and he emphasizes that at times too. But it's the, the fact that these are going to be foreigners in your land speaking a language you're not going to understand. And that's such an interesting little specific detail of a foreign invasion that we probably wouldn't think about 
ahead of time if it isn't pointed out to us. But imagine it for us. It's different for, for, for us because Israel was also a nation with, a, with land. And so they were physically invaded here. The church isn't like that. The church is a, a heavenly nation that, that um, transcends, that's the word, nations of this world. So the kingdom of God, the church, is made up of people from every nation. So you can't really do a direct comparison. So imagine it instead more as Americans. So imagine that a foreign force invades our country. And I'm just going to say Russians because that is a language to me that definitely sounds foreign. Okay, so it's a Russian invasion that catches by surprise and they win and they take over our country for a period of time. And they are an occupying force in America and they take our they can take over your home and say, okay, this is this commander's home now and kick you out. And so they're here and it's violent and it's scary in so many ways. But just think about that one detail. The people now here and in charge are speaking Russian and we don't understand it. And so they come marching in and they understand what they're saying. And it's this, in my ears, a harsh sounding foreign language. And all of a sudden you feel like a foreigner where you should feel at home. There's a unique sort of terror to that. There's something uniquely scary about that. And that was the judgment on Israel. Your foreign invaders are going to come, and they're going to take over. And that's going to be bad in many ways. And one of the ways that I want you to especially count on is you're not going to understand what they're saying. You're going to be at a loss. You're going to be like little children because you're not going to know what's going on. You can't understand them. And you're going to feel like an outsider where you should feel like an insider. You're going to feel like a stranger where you should feel at home. Now, why is Paul bringing this up right now? His point is, this gift of speaking in tongues, languages that nobody knows, is, does not fit a church gathering. Because when you do that, you turn everybody else into a foreigner, where they should feel at home. You're embracing and celebrating a confusion that historically and scripturally has been a sign of God's judgment when his people are acting like unbelievers, You instead should be celebrating prophecy, which is the clear speaking of God's word in church, because historically and scripturally, that has been a sign of God's blessing. You Corinthians are so infantile in your thinking, you're so confused. You've got it all backwards. See, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. You think this crazy confusion in your gatherings is a sign of God's blessing, but no, this is what happens when God's people are behaving like unbelievers? Prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. It was damaging their fellowship and their worship. It was also damaging their evangelism. Let's read on into verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is such a candid verse. Will they not say that you're crazy? The the Greek there is kind of two ideas. It's insane plus raving. So imagine a visitor. We have a couple of visitors. We're we're glad. I don't know if you've ever, many of us have been a part of this church for so long, it's hard to even think about what it would be like to come into our church gatherings as a complete outsider and visitor. There must be many things that are strange. Think about it as somebody who's an outsider to Christianity altogether, who's never been to a church service entering in. 
Think of all the things that would seem strange. I tend to think that one of the strangest things would be the singing. There's just really no other place where people get together and sing songs like we do in church. And I would think that people would be thinking, what are they doing? Singing these songs. But now imagine a visitor coming in to our church worship service and many people among us are speaking in foreign tongues that they themselves don't even understand. Some of them may be just sort of muttering it to themselves like a prayer. Some of them may be singing a song in a language that they themselves don't even understand. Nobody else does. I'm up here preaching something that, that sounds just like noise. That person, I feel certain, would slowly back out of the sanctuary And as soon as the door shut, they would sprint to their car and we would hear the sound of their tires screeching out of the parking lot. And they would get home or to their friends, they would say, man, I went and visited Doolin's Grove. Those people are out of their minds. It makes no sense. I remember, I've told you before, I had an early experience with some Pentecostal Christians when I was recently out of high school. And so I was just a young kid, you know, in terms of my faith and my understanding of the Bible. But I didn't grow up in a tradition that even believed a spiritual gift of speaking in tongues existed anymore. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where that's what they taught. And then I met these Pentecostal guys, and they were genuinely Christians. I mean, they they had a lot of evident fruit of being Christians, and they were great guys. But they came up in a tradition that, that practiced speaking in tongues like this. And one of the first questions they asked me was, they found out I was a Christian, and said, well, do you speak in tongues? And I was just a scared kid. I was like, uh, no, I don't, I don't know. And they, I got to know them better, and I hung out with them outside of work, and they would invite me to their church. But they told me about their church services, and it sounded crazy. And I never went. I never went with them to church. And the reason I never went is because it sounded so scary. It sounded terrifying. And only now, as I read this passage, do I see That's one of the points God gives as to why that's not how you should use the gift of tongues in church. It is scary. Now, church should feel a little bit different. Not a little bit. It should feel very different to what he calls here outsiders or unbelievers. As someone who is not a Christian, who's never been a part of Christianity, shouldn't come in and feel the same way they do at a movie theater or a baseball game right at home. There should be a feeling of, okay, something is different about what's going on here. But that's not, it shouldn't be because it's so chaotic and crazy and everybody's having these ecstatic individual experiences. There's another reason why it should feel possibly even a little bit scary. And that's what Paul gets to in the final two verses, verses 24 and 25. Let's read those together. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. See, the evidence of God's presence, his present power at work, in the church, when they gather for worship, is not individual worship experiences. It's the invasive uncovering of the heart. The invasive uncovering of the heart. 
We need to really soak in these two verses here. Back to verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. That word all gives the picture of just a pervasive culture of prophecy. Now again, I just want to remind you of what he's talking about here. I don't believe is a technical term for the way Isaiah was a prophet where God gives you this dramatic, specific word that almost tells the future for someone else. He describes it over in verse uh, 3, where he says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. I believe what he means here is anyone who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word of God, speaks intentionally to others for their upbuilding, their encouragement, their consolation, their instruction. So it can happen from the pulpit, it can happen in the Sunday school classroom, it can happen in conversation over breakfast, it can happen through our prayers that people overhear, it can happen through our singing. But he's talking about a, a culture where this is what we do with our words when we gather together. And the effect is that outsiders or unbelievers, people who come in that, that are not used to this, are convicted, called to account, and the secrets of their heart are revealed. Convicted means exposed as if brought into the light. Called to account, it's, the, it's like a judicial sort of language. It's the idea of being examined until a verdict is able to be rendered. Secrets of the heart revealed means that the hidden, pre-conscious inner self is uncovered. The true self is unmasked. The unfiltered reality of a person is brought into the light. It's what is described over in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, 13, where it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. So, we probably should expect our church gatherings to be uncomfortable at times, especially for those who are outsiders to the Christian faith, because out there in a dark world, we are not used to this kind of light. I don't know if you've ever experienced getting ready to go somewhere, maybe early in the morning, as I often am on Sunday mornings. I slip out before my family's awake. You get your shirt out of the closet, and it looks pretty good. So you go ahead and get dressed, and you put it on, and then as soon as you walk out in the daylight, you look down, and you realize it's completely wrinkled. But you couldn't see that when you're in the dark, but as soon as you come out into the light, it's revealed to you the truth. Now, often, you know, we live in a darkened world where we compare ourselves to our neighbors or the people we see on TV, and so there's always people who are more sinful than I am. There's always, you can look down the spectrum, there's always somebody who's worse than you are. And so we can feel generally pretty righteous, pretty holy. But when you come into the light and you're surrounded by God's word being shined at you from every angle, 
all of a sudden you see yourself for who you really are. And without Jesus Christ, it's not a pretty picture. And many of you will be going to the beach this summer, have already gone, will be going soon. You ever had that experience, you get to the beach, and the first time you run out into that salt water, and all of a sudden, cuts and scrapes that you had no idea you had begin to scream and howl at you in that salt water? That's kind of the way immersion into the church ought to feel for any of us when we have open, ongoing sin in our lives. Like that salt water reveals and begins to deal with those cuts and open wounds that maybe we, didn't even, we weren't even aware of. The word of God, as transferred by people, begins to reveal and deal with the sin that's in our lives that we maybe weren't even aware of outside. Now, that, um, that can be difficult. That can be scary. But it's always good. Because the God who is bringing this to the surface loves you. And he loves that outsider or that unbeliever. And his desire is that through Jesus Christ, that person will realize, woe is me, I am a sinner. And will come and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and cleansing. Because Jesus Christ died for all that sin. Now this is the way the prophet Isaiah experienced his interaction with God. If you'll remember in Isaiah chapter 6, in a very dramatic vision, God calls the prophet Isaiah to go forth with his message. And Isaiah's response after he sees all this, his response there in Isaiah 6 verse 5, and I said, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That kind of reaction, that's how you know that the Lord is present. It was the same experience for Peter when he first met Jesus. He had been out fishing unsuccessfully, and then this Jewish teacher hops in the boat and goes out and says, cast your net over there. And Peter says, well, I've been doing that. I'm an expert fisherman, and I've never, I didn't catch anything. But if you say so, I'll try. And then he heaves this massive catch of fish back into the boat, almost capsizes it, and he realizes who it is that he's sitting beside. And the first thing he says there in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So here Isaiah and Peter, their response to the presence of God isn't, this is awesome. It's, oh no, I see myself as if for the first time, and I'm unclean, and I'm from an unholy people, and I'm full of sin, and I can't take this. Now, luckily, God is so loving and gracious that embraced Isaiah and made him holy, embraced Peter, made him holy. But there's a shock to the system when you're not used to hearing God's word and the gospel, and you come into it. The result back in 1 Corinthians, in verse 25 The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, which is a sign of awe and reverence and humility, he will worship God. He will see God for who he is and declare that God is really among you. Really, it's as if it's a revised conclusion. God really is a part of this. So I asked at the beginning, is God really among us? 
Is his power really present and evident among us? And how would we know? Not ecstatic personal worship experiences. Not emotionally stirring and moving music. Not boosted attendance. Not a busy church calendar. Not fun social interactions. All those things are great. But none of those necessarily indicate God's powerful presence among us. What indicates God's powerful presence among us is a growing incompatibility of our sin. It's not that we're going to be perfect immediately, but we sure are going to want it. We're not going to be able to live in ongoing, open, unrepentant sin. That doesn't work. You can't be a Christian and embrace ongoing, open, unrepentant sin. God doesn't allow it. He's too holy. And the resources we have in the gospel are more than sufficient to free us from these things. It's when prophecy, as described here, is abundant among the conversations and preaching and teaching of the church. And it leads to conviction. It leads to a feeling of exposure before God that you know that God is present and powerful and working. Spirit-empowered, scripture-soaked words aimed at building, encouraging, consoling, and instructing draw people from darkness into the light, expose their hearts, and lead them to worship. That's evidence of God's presence. May we experience this more and more. I pray that we will experience it more and more and more, that we'll see the unbridled power of God among us, that we'll think maturely about how we go about being the church together and worship together, and that we'll not settle for less than God's powerful presence. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with your people, not just us, but including us, but all through history, you've been so gracious and patient with your people who so easily stray and quickly turn away. Lord, it's a little scary for us, but we do open ourselves up to your Holy Spirit inspection. If there's any sin in us, would you please reveal it to us, convict us, Reveal the secrets of our hearts, things we don't even understand about ourselves, deep-seated sin patterns that we've either tried to justify and explain away or just haven't noticed. We want to be your people and close to you and experience a full relationship with you through Jesus Christ. So please help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.